This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matthan, Matthan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So great to be here with you. If you don't know me, my name is Jono, and uh, I... Pastor, the church across the way at uh, Harrington Park, and uh, it's lovely to be with you this morning as we uh, start this new series in the book of Matthew. Will you pray with me as we come to consider this wonderful part of God's Word? Our Father, we do thank you for your Word that is living and active, that is a lamp to our feet. Father, we ask that you'd help us to know you better, that we may love you more and live your way. And we ask in Jesus' name, 
Amen. Well, uh, it is the beginning of a new school year and uh, we're launching this new series uh, starting at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. And what a beginning it is with chapter one, with this uh, genealogy. Uh, Genealogies like this can sometimes be the sorts of parts of the Bible that we might be tempted to kind of, oh, let's just... um, Let's just skip that bit and move on to something more, more interesting perhaps. Or if you're on the Bible reading roster and you, you land Matthew 1, you might kind of think, gee, I really drew the short straw there. But so well done, Hannah. That was uh, beautifully read. Uh, it, it is uh, kind of one of these parts of the Bible. It is, it, I mean, genealogies seem a bit strange with these long lists of strange names. And yet this is how Matthew chose to start his gospel account. In fact, this is how the whole New Testament begins it begins with this genealogy and furthermore if we're persuaded of God's sovereign authorship of the scriptures which I I hope we are then God intends us to to have Matthew 1 and to to begin this gospel account listening to this part of his word Uh, these genealogies are indeed part of the Bible and so we should read them we should listen to what they're telling us Uh, of course we shouldn't get obsessed with genealogies and, and caught up with them and fascinated by them. Uh, Titus chapter 3 verse 9 says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. So, you know, we, we shouldn't get all caught up in senseless arguments about them. But the genealogies are in the Bible for a purpose. Now, for us, the, uh, this genealogy might seem strange with all these names and, and all this repetition. But actually, I want to say that's not the strange thing about this genealogy. This, this genealogy is a bit strange. But the strange thing is not all the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the repetition and the strange names. The strange thing is the inclusion of five mothers. Now, mothers can and, and sometimes are included in genealogies. But the normal pattern of genealogies is, is to trace through the descendants through the fathers. And that is the case here with this genealogy. The, the pattern is so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who's the, and, and on it goes. That's the pattern. But along the way, Matthew interrupts this pattern by mentioning five mothers. And he does it deliberately to make a point, which I hope is what we'll see this morning. But that's the thing. These genealogies are actually, they make a point. They're not just a kind of meaningless catalogue of ancestors to, you know, pad out the, the pages of our Bible or something. They're actually there to make a point, to communicate something to us. Uh, Matthew has put together his gospel account to tell his readers, to tell us who Jesus is and what God has done through him. That's the purpose of his gospel account. And he chooses to start with Jesus' genealogy. Matthew 1, verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Or if you notice, if you've got your Bibles, I hope you do have a Bible because I haven't got verses to put on the screen. It'll be a lot easier if you can, can look at a, a text in a book or a device or something. But in the, if you've got a, a, uh, one of the church Bibles, there should be a little footnote next to the word genealogy and it says down the bottom of the page, or is an account of the origin this is an, an account of the origin of Jesus. Now, the word origin, genealogy, it's, it's two translations of, of one word. In the original language, it's the same word as Genesis, the, the name of the first book of the Bible. It means beginning, it means origin. 
And so just as the Bible in the Old Testament begins with the Genesis, the, the beginning, here is, in introducing Jesus, Matthew's presenting us with literally a new Genesis, a new creation, a new beginning. Literally, it's here is the book of the origin, the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah. And that's the big headline put up front. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the Messiah is, is the king. The word Messiah from the Hebrew, Mashiach, means king. Same as the word Christ, uh, Christos is the Greek, from which we get Christ, also means king. Messiah, Christ, they both mean king. Here is the origin of the king. That's the headline. But then the, the sub-headline is, is also up front. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These two towering figures from the Old Testament, David and Abraham. Jesus is descended from them both. And as such, he is the fulfillment of God's promise to both Abraham and to, to David. And so Matthew constructs this genealogy to make that point. He, he presents it in three sections around these key uh, people and events from Abraham to David, section one. Section two, from David to the exile to Babylon. And then section three, from the exile of Babylon to Jesus. Which he's, and he summarizes this, verse 17. He's in a nutshell, he says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The point is, Jesus didn't just appear from nowhere. God had a plan, a plan that started way back long ago with Abraham, a plan that continued sent through the centuries, continued later to David, and then continued generation after generation, even through the darkness and the hopelessness of the exile, all building towards the coming of the Messiah, God's promised King. But to really get that, to, to, to get what God is doing there, we need to go back. We, we need to go back centuries before Jesus, all the way back to Genesis 12, where we read that, that God chose one man, Abram, and he made a promise to him. He promised to bring blessing to the world, to a world that was, was under curse, the curse of sin and death. And God promised to bring blessing through that one man, Abram, and through his descendants, it's a key moment in the, in the storyline of the Bible. It kind of sets the course of the, the rest of the Bible as, it, as the story traces down through the descendants from Abraham to, to his son Isaac. So verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob also gets another name. His name's Israel. And from Jacob, from Israel, come 12 sons from which we get the 12 tribes of Israel but only one of those sons is, is, is drawn out here in the genealogy that is Judah because this royal kingly line traces through Judah just as, as his father Jacob said it would you can read it in Genesis uh, 49 and so from Judah down through the generations down into verse 5 to Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of notice King David. Notice it's King David. This is the royal line, the origins of the king. And David was the great king. I mean, he, this is the kind of the high point of Israel. 
the golden age for the nation. And there with David, God confirmed his promise. He, he promised to David that one of his descendants would be king forever. And so we trace it through from David to Solomon. But really you have to say from there, things started to go downhill fairly quickly to, to Rehoboam, to Abijah and on, king after king, most of whom were like the people of, of Israel. They turned away from God. They disobeyed God until they reached the, the, real, the lowest point in the history of Israel when God brought judgment on them for, for their rebellion and, and uh, they were defeated and taken away as captives into exile to Babylon. There's these three kind of three great markers of the history of Israel, from Abraham to David to the exile to Babylon. Abraham's the beginning, the, the, the seed of hope, the promise. David is the, in part the, the, the promise fulfilled and the promise reaffirmed. Babylon is the great low point where it seemed that everything had gone wrong. And yet, even after Babylon, this genealogy continues. Seventy years later, we, we read that actually God restored his people. Uh, some of his people returned from Babylon and, well, right, whilst they were never the same again, the genealogy still traces through this royal seed of hope, through to Jesus. Here is the origin of Jesus, the Messiah. As I said, those, those key landmarks, uh, Matthew says, verse 17, there, thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The significance of 14? I don't know. Maybe it's um, twice seven, the, the number of God's perfection and, and completion. Maybe it's emphasizing that God's perfect plan is, is working out through all of this. Maybe. Or maybe that's just kind of speculation about genealogies, the, the kind of thing that we're that could lead us to quarrels and arguments and the thing we were warned against doing. So, but there, nonetheless, there is this quick, um, this quick survey of the genealogy. Except for the fact that I've missed a few bits, haven't I? And the bits I've missed are the strange bits, the bits I mentioned earlier. They're, they're the, the mention of these five mothers. Uh, they are what I would call the skeletons in the closet. Now, as I get older, I've, I've come to realise that uh, sometimes one of the, the joys of being older is you say things that people younger than you kind of go, what on earth are you talking about? Uh, it's kind of one of the joys. Um, like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I, I said that once a little while back and some, you know, some of the youth sort of looked at me like, what on earth are you talking about? Um, if you don't know what that phrase means, ask um, someone older than, than you. But um, a, a skeleton in the closet, in case you don't know, is, is a way of talking about an embarrassing or incriminating secret from your past. You know, like discovering that your great-grandfather was an axe murderer or something like that. that. That would be a skeleton in the closet. Something dodgy that you kind of don't really want other people to know about, so you, you hide it in, in the closet, so to speak. Uh, there are a number of skeletons in the closet in this genealogy. In genealogy. There are five of them, in fact. Five mothers who are mentioned. Uh, perhaps it would actually be better to say five mothers who are highlighted, because they actually don't need to be there, like the genealogy would work perfectly well without them, but they're put in there, they're highlighted to make a point. And it's unusual, to say the least. Uh, the first of them is there in uh, verse 3 with Tamar. It says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now to 
first century Jewish readers, they'd, they'd be very familiar with the, the story of Judah and Tamar. Um, you may be familiar with it. It's, it's recorded in Genesis 38. It's a real low point in the history of Israel. Um, Judah mistreats his daughter-in-law Tamar and then he mistakes her for a prostitute and has sex with her. She becomes pregnant and has twins, uh, Perez and, and Zerah. It's not the kind of story that you kind of want to highlight on your respectable record of the royal line. But there it is. Then there's Rahab in verse 5. Rahab was a, a Canaanite woman. She was from the enemies of God's people. And she was a prostitute. She wasn't just mistaken for a prostitute. She was a prostitute. Uh, Rahab helped the Israelite spies when they spied out Jericho. And, and subsequently, when Israel later destroyed Jericho, she and her family were saved. And in fact, she became part of this royal lineage as the mother of Boaz, an ancestor of King David. What a skeleton in the closet for Matthew to bring out. Then there's Ruth, the Moabite. Now, in many ways, Ruth is kind of held up as, she's a great heroine of of the Old Testament. I mean, her love and her devotion to her mother-in-law, Naomi, is astounding that that famous speech at the end of uh, Ruth chapter 1 where she says to her mother-in-law where you go I will go where you stay I will stay your people will be my people your God will be my God it's this wonderful expression of love and, and devotion and yet Ruth was a foreigner she was from Moab the people who had led astray God's people and yet here she is included in the the royal line, the great-grandmother of King David. Then there's Solomon's mother, uh, referred to in verse 6 as uh, uh, Solomon's mother, sorry, Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. She's actually not even named here, but just referred to as Uriah's wife. Uh, We know her from um, 2 Samuel 11 as, as Bathsheba, whom King David had had taken to be his wife after he committed adultery with her and arranged for her husband to be killed. It's a really, you'd have to say, it's, it's the great low point of, of David's life. And Matthew shines a spotlight on it, just including the mention of Solomon's mother who had been Uriah's wife. Remember that whole scene? Also in the family line, uh, the royal family line. So there's four skeletons in the closet which Matthew drags out and puts on display in his account of the origin of the Messiah. There's one more, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. Now, even without knowing what comes next, and we're familiar with you know, the, the Christmas narrative um, a gospel account of, Jesus, of Mary conceiving through the Holy Spirit. Even without knowing that, already there's this kind of big shadow cast here. The, the pattern of the genealogy is, is broken. Instead of the father of, the father of, the father of, we have Mary was the mother of Jesus. And so the paternity of Jesus is, well, it's missing. It kind of raises a question a question that verses 18 to 25 addresses, but it's, it's at least unusual, if, if not suspiciously scandalous. And it suggests, well, there's a, there's a break in the line. It suggests 
Perhaps Joseph wasn't the father of Jesus. So what do we make of this strange paternity of Jesus? And why are these four skeletons in the closet being dragged out and put on display? The answer comes in the next bit in Matthew 1 with what I've called the origin of the king, part 2. Verse 18 says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Literally, if you again see the footnote there, it's the, uh, the, the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, was like this. There's that word origin again. It's the same word, the Genesis. The Genesis starts with a scandal. Verse 18 continues, his mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Now, the process of marriage um, back then was a little different to our culture today. Um, They were, notice it says, pledged to be married, which is is more than um, than our concept of engagement. Um, Notice the next verse that Joseph is referred to as her husband, uh, and he contemplates divorce. So they'd already made a binding commitment uh, to each other, and yet they were not fully married. They had not yet come together. The marriage had not yet been consummated. They hadn't had sex but she was found to be pregnant. Now, to Joseph, this could understandably only mean one thing. Mary had been unfaithful. And it says since he was faithful to the law, he was a righteous man wanting to do the right thing, the right thing to do would be to, to call it off, to divorce Mary. But he's also a compassionate and, and kind man and so he says he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace and so he had in mind to do it do it quietly. But then the bigger explanation comes. Uh, Mary has not been unfaithful. Verse 20, it says that a, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him, Joseph, son of David. Notice there the connection to the royal line. Let's not forget, Joseph is he's in the line of David. Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel says God has miraculously caused her to conceive without the normal process involving sexual intercourse. Now, biologically, scientifically, we may struggle to get our heads around this. But on the other hand, if we can accept that God is the sovereign creator of all and he can bring the universe into being, it's pretty reasonable to also accept that he can bring about the conception of a baby by scientifically unexplained means. And so the angel explained to, to Joseph, the baby is from the Holy Spirit. Well, as if that wasn't enough for Joseph to, to wrap his head around, the angel then said, verse 21, she will give birth to a son, you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, that's some pretty significant dream, right? This miraculously conceived son, this son of David, this son of Abraham, this one whose origin is grounded in the age-old promise of God, he will be called the Lord saves. That's what Jesus means, the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sins. What's this new beginning? It is the salvation from sin. But then Matthew kind of paints the canvas 
even, even bigger. This is even bigger news. Uh, Matthew says, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew's referring back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where, where God said he would give Israel a sign, a sign that despite their rebellion, despite their brokenness, God would bring salvation amidst his judgment. This son will be born to a virgin, will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The king who came despite the rebellion and brokenness of God's people, who came even amongst it, he came to bring judgment upon sin, seen most fully some 33 years later as Jesus hung on a cross and there took the judgment for our sin and brought salvation from sin. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he thought, wow, what a dream. Um, no, verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Just to the side, notice that the concept of the perpetual, perpetual virginity of, of Mary has no scriptural basis. Um, he didn't consummate his marriage until she gave birth to a son. Presumably he did after she gave birth to a son, as is supported by the fact that Jesus had other brothers and sisters. That's just an aside. Notice what he did. He took Mary home as his wife. She gave birth and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph is the father of Jesus in that sense. That is, he gave him his name. And so the, the, the line, to, sorry, the link to the royal line is made there. And the question of, of Jesus' paternity is resolved. It may not be for us, we kind of get a bit hung up on genetics. But in terms of family relationship, Joseph is the one who gave Jesus his name. Jesus is the Messiah promised son of David, the promised son of Abraham. And even bigger than that, he is God with us to bring us salvation from our sin, even in the midst of judgment. And I think that's the, the point of these skeletons in the closet. Matthew's saying, God has been working out his perfect plan and purpose. Despite, amongst, and even through the brokenness of rebellion and sin, even through the immoral actions of Judah and the scandal of marrying into the enemies of God, even despite the colossal failure of, of David, his adultery and his murderous actions, even despite the rebellion of God's people and the decline and the demise of the nation at the hands of the Babylonians, even despite the centuries of seeming nothingness for God's people, God was still bringing about his plans and his purposes, all building towards the birth of this son. This is the origin, the, the genesis, the, the new beginning of Jesus, the Messiah. What this all means for us is firstly, God's plan of salvation is not constrained by our sin and brokenness. I mean, if we were putting together this royal family line of Jesus, I, 
or certainly if we were self-righteous Pharisees putting it together, we'd leave out the dodgy bits, right? I mean, we just present things as, as good and, and right and as clean as we can because we're all inclined to, to think that we, we need to put on a good show. You know, we need to have it all together. We need to, to always be calm and always be godly and kind of like Ben's driveway miracle a couple of weeks ago for those who are here. And look, indeed, God wants us to be godly. He wants us to do what is right. He wants us to grow in our godliness. He wants us to put to death the things of our sinful nature. The problem is we don't always do that. We don't always do what's right. We aren't always godly. We do indulge our sinful nature. So what happens then? Is it kind of, well, show's over, deal's off, sorry, God, God's plan only works with good people? No. God is not constrained by our sin and brokenness. And that is wonderful news. In fact, he worked out his plan over many centuries despite, amongst, and at times even through human sin and brokenness. And so we should never think, I'm too broken, I'm too sinful for God. No, his gracious plan is so much bigger than the worst of our sin and brokenness. Because secondly, his plan of salvation is for salvation from sin and brokenness. In the right time, in in the fulfillment of all his promises, God sent his son Jesus to save his people from their sins. Now, it's not as if our, our sin isn't a big deal to God. It is a big deal. In fact, it's so much of a big deal that he set about this extraordinary plan over thousands of years, all culminating with with the coming of his own son, the Messiah, the King, the Saviour from sin. Our sin is such a big deal. So much so that God moved heaven and earth to save us from it. Such is his love for us. Love which means that thirdly, God's plan is to be God with us as our king. Now, what an astoundingly beautiful word that is, Emmanuel, God with us. Most perfectly with us, uh, fully with us as Jesus, our Messiah. And with us now by his spirit, reigning as our king. I want to say, if, um, if Matthew's introduction to Jesus, this, this account of his origin, this, this new beginning, if, if that's news to you, Today is a really good day because the the God who created you has sent his son as king to be your king, to save you from your sins. And that is really good news. For people like you and me who left to ourselves rebel against our creator, that is astoundingly good news. And I want to say, I hope you latch onto that with both hands, that, that you read on into Matthew's gospel and find out more about this king, find out more what he's come to do for you. But if that's not news for you, as I, as I expect is the case for most, if not perhaps all of you, I hope that you will be profoundly encouraged as you're reminded of the magnitude of God's extraordinary plan fulfilled in Jesus and the centrality of that, the importance of that, that, that this new genesis, this new beginning, God's Messiah, the, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation and blessing. That despite our sin and brokenness, 
This is a new beginning that we're invited into. As we follow Jesus, our Messiah, our King. And despite the sin and brokenness of the world around us, this is actually the new beginning that our world so desperately needs. So let's pray and let's do all we can to get this news out there. Let's pray now. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are sovereign, sovereign over history, over this world, sovereign over our lives. Father, we thank you for your amazing plan of salvation through Jesus, your Son, our Messiah. We thank you for your sovereign grace that, that your plan is bigger than and not constrained by our sin and brokenness. Father, we thank you that your plan is indeed to save us from our sin and brokenness. Father, we pray that you would teach us, that you grow us in the days and weeks ahead to know Jesus, the Messiah, more fully and to follow him more closely. And we ask in his glorious name. Amen.